It's working, it's working. What's working? The radio, I fixed it. I just talked to that lady flyer. You what? Honest, I'm not dreaming or anything. And I figure you better do the talking, because I don't want to cause any more trouble. I want everything to work out just right. The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I was wondering when you were going to come see me. After all, I've been your property for two days. Navarre, you and your sisters don't belong to me. Or anyone else. I don't understand. On my world, slavery's been illegal for hundreds of years. Are you saying that you don't want us? I'm saying that you're here as our guests, not our property. I've been a slave my entire life. On different worlds for different owners. What's gonna happen to me? You're free to start a new life. In the meantime, I've asked my protocol officer, Hoshisato, to brief you on ship's operations. There are certain areas that are reserved for Starfleet personnel. I know what happened in engineering. I've already spoken to Dinesh. I'm sorry. There's no reason to apologize. It's a big adjustment for the three of you. May I ask you something? Do you find me attractive? I'd be lying if I said no. I've known so few honest men. And even though you don't wish to own me, I still wish to please you. If I choose to do this, that violate your ship's protocol? Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, March the 3rd, 2016. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on WBCQ 5130 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yeah, you heard right. Well... Well, of course you heard right, because that's the name of the show. <laughs> but yes, we are today on the frequency of 5130 MHz after being politely asked to move just a bit further to the right on the dial from the 5110 spot we occupied formerly. We were asked by none other than the U.S. military itself, which suddenly decided it had plans for our previous frequency. The security of the country is apparently at stake. Those of you who tuned in to last week's show will recall that we took a look at Black History Month. After reviewing some of the justifications and commentaries and some of the news stories and you know the, the comments made by many promoting the event, it started to become pretty clear that Black History Month was more about advancing a racial agenda by associating race with past conditions of slavery in America's Deep South than it really was about history or eliminating racism. Now today, I'd like to skip the racism issue and move on to the next part of this equation. Now not ignore the racism issue because we can't when others keep bringing it up, but perhaps make it clear simply how irrelevant race was when it comes to the issue of slavery itself. 
I'm sure many of you never knew that there were black slave owners in the South, in the Southern states during the ownership of of slavery. And yet you get very few people who understand this. I wasn't even aware of this. You're going to be learning things like this during the course of the show today. But this is a story that needs to be told and understood, especially since the issue and the threat of slavery as a reality, both around the world and here at home, is always with us, and it will never disappear. I, I, I know you're, you all think, oh, well, we've done away with slavery. No, it will only disappear if we commit ourselves to a free and capitalistic political and economic environment. So capitalism or slavery, that's our choice. Which will it be? And I use the word slavery in its true sense of the word, not simply for its implied shock value, okay? Those are our very real and true choices that we're going to take a look at today. So, before we get underway, don't forget, you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ 5130 MHz and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, where do I start Um, after last week's show? What can we say about slavery that you think you already don't know? Well, just about everything you're going to hear on the show today. But that's not where I want to start. I want to start with what I see as the antidote to slavery, and that is the system we learn to call capitalism. Not the system so much as the condition. The system is predicated on other principles. Now, I received a feedback inquiry over the past week that was actually addressed to me at Freedom Party. For those who don't know, I'm the president of Freedom Party. I do a lot of spokes uh, work for the party. And, of course, what I do with Freedom Party is totally consistent with what we're doing here at Just Right. Although you can't assume that what you're hearing on Just Right represents any kind of policy as such. But the feedback was one that really addressed the issue of slavery. And its subject heading was simply this, what do you think of capitalism? Well, of course, in a nutshell, um, what I think of capitalism and why I would bring it up in this context, it's because I think it's the only economic choice that we have against slavery or various forms of slavery. And if you don't have capitalism, you will have slavery, as unbelievable as this seems to so many in the 21st century today. So that's where we're going to be leading with our argument. Now, here's a letter I got from a letter writer named Jamie, and under the subject heading, What Do You Think of Capitalism? And Jamie writes, It's time to get our freedom back. I wonder, when was the last time we were free? Was it when we were a one-cell organism, or when we crawled out of the oceans? Or when we were walking on all fours. Gone are the days of freedom because I know being a consumer does not produce any sort of freedom for people that are not capitalists. End quote. And with that, Jamie left me scratching my head as I'm doing right now. I wrote back to Jamie and this is what I told Jamie and that I'll now share with you. And, of course, the first thing I I addressed was I explained to Jamie that, of course, capitalism is an economic condition that Freedom Party fully supports and that I fully support. Now, freedom itself, let's start with some definitions, of course. Freedom describes that social and political condition in which the initiation of violence, force, and coercion are absent or prohibited in human relationships. That's what we mean when we say we are free. We are free from the coercion of other people. 
other people to determine our choices, other people who determine our destinies. Not free from anything else, not from animals, nature, the sky, the weather, or anything, just free from other people and their choices. Now, capitalism is the economic dimension of freedom. It's the same as freedom, except it's the economic part of it. In other words, consumers are free to choose from a given set of alternatives without being forced to buy from those alternatives, nor being forced or prevented from buying something by government or criminals. They're, they're the only two groups that can do that to you. Therefore, capitalism is the only moral and civilized form of exchange and production that has ever been discovered by mankind because it, it prohibits the use of force. If you're using force in an equation, it's no longer capitalistic. Now, one-cell organisms, are they free? I don't think so. One-cell organisms or any other non-human life forms have no concept of freedom, nor are they ever in a condition of freedom. Get that idea out of your head. They are in a condition of savagery, meaning that they are completely at the mercy of their environment and immediate physical conditions without being able to adapt to those conditions, or, or at least themselves, or without being able to adapt those conditions to their needs. But Jamie's quite correct in stating that being, quote, being a consumer does not produce any sort of freedom for people, end quote. That's true, because all human beings are born consumers. As soon as you pop out of the womb, you're already in a consumption state. Then that's the first thing you need, is that milk. No matter how communistic, socialistic, or fascistic any political environment may be that a person grows up in. If anything, just being a consumer would produce slavery, not capitalism or capitalists. And that's exactly what it did. Capitalism is an economy free of coercion. It's about production. It's not about consumption. Consumption is the given. Production is the discovered and requires a hierarchy of knowledge that relatively few ever achieve because it requires great effort, work, and above all, risk. A risk of not just winning, but of possibly losing. All non-capitalistic countries, quote-unquote, produce by means of various forms of slavery uh, or of, of theft from producers, and they're therefore incapable of producing enough to feed themselves, let alone create any surpluses to be able to feed those unable to produce enough for themselves on their own. So it's not a question of when will we get our freedom back, but when will we ever achieve this condition for the first time? Which was the direction headed in and most closely reached by the Western nations generally throughout the 1800s and the early 1900s. And guess what else was happening during that period? Slavery was being wiped out. Since then, particularly since World War II though, all Western governments have been going the other way, gradually rejecting capitalism and with it freedom in favor of state control of the economy, state control of personal choice, and an imposition of taxes that quote-unquote consume, if you're worried about consumption, the largest single portion of the average person's income and wealth. You know, I never get letters about, geez, what are we going to do about the consumption of government taking from us? Is, is the consumption of government sustainable? No, I always get it the other way around. Or <laughs> can the producers handle it? Freedom and capitalism are both conditions of human relationships. 
And that means conditions that are based on consent, not on force, fraud, or violence, which are the only alternatives to consent. If you can think of another, you let me know. Freedom and capitalism are not mere ends that can be achieved in some sort of moral or intellectual vacuum. Political freedom does not, quote-unquote, protect anyone from the weather or from one's own responsibilities or obligations or from any other form uh, or condition of nature. Political freedom can only be achieved when government commits itself to the protection of life, liberty, and property, which, by the way, are rights to action, not to things. All rights pertain to action. You have a right to a thing once you've already taken the action to acquire it or earn it or have it given to you. But before that, to get that thing requires action. So, as I said to Jamie, and I'll I'll now say to everyone, if the subject of capitalism as such is is of further interest, and if you haven't done so yet, I, I really do recommend that you check out Ayn Rand's incredible synopsis on the subject in her collection of essays, Essays written by a number of people, by the way. And it's called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Or if you prefer, hey, tune into this show. Check out JustRightMedia.org and check out all our past shows of Just Right that are online and that air every Thursday on WBCQ. And there are many ways to search the site, and I'm sure there will be plenty of discussion on the issue of capitalism itself. So I hope that helps in addressing that issue. Now... I did receive a follow-up question from Jamie a few days later, and that, that opened up another can of worms. And I'll be sharing that letter and my response on the other side of our upcoming bumper bites. But first, to drive the point home that what you get when you don't have capitalism is slavery, I offer the following as a demonstration of that reality. What I'm about to share with you I myself heard only for the first time this past Sunday. The voice you will hear is that of a narrator of a section of an audiobook that was written by Thomas Sowell. And the book is called Black Rednecks and White Liberals, and this was from chapter 3 of that book called Slavery's Real History. Now, of course, Thomas Sowell is an American economist, a social theorist, political philosopher, and author. He's currently fellow or senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And uh, he grew up in Harlem, New York. He dropped out of high school and served in the U.S. Marine Corps during the Korean War. Received a bachelor's degree, graduating magna cum laude from Harvard University in 1958. And so we've had we've entertained uh, Thomas Sowell on the show before, just through audio bites. This is not his voice that you will be hearing, but it is his writing. It's been posted to YouTube since 2012. I noticed there's been over 40,000 views or listens, I guess, because there's really just a still picture to entertain you while the audio (laughs) of the full chapter runs over two hours in length. And it's worth it, let me tell you. You ever want to wrap your head around the reality of slavery's history? Not this black history fiction foisted upon us by those, those with leftist agendas and philosophies. I strongly recommend you check it out. Now... Here's a a nine-and-a-half-minute sample of what you will hear, after which I'll have a few of my own contexts to wrap around this picture, along with pointing my finger at the economic elephant in the room. And we'll also get back to Jamie's uh, letter and response when we return after this. Slavery was an evil of greater scope and magnitude than most people imagine, and, as a result, its place in history is radically different from the way it is usually portrayed. 
mention slavery, and immediately the image that arises of Africans and their descendants enslaved by Europeans and their descendants in the southern United States, or at most, Africans enslaved by Europeans in the Western Hemisphere. No other historic horror is so narrowly construed. No one thinks of war, famine, or decimating epidemics in such localized terms. These are afflictions that have been suffered by the entire human race all over the planet, and so was slavery. Had slavery been limited to one race in one country during three centuries, its tragedies would not have been one-tenth the magnitude that they were in fact. Why this provincial view of a worldwide evil? Often, it is those who are most critical of a Eurocentric view of the world who are most Eurocentric when it comes to the evils and failings of the human race. Why would anyone wish to arbitrarily understate an evil that plagued mankind for thousands of years, unless it was not this evil itself that was the real concern, but rather the present-day uses of that historic evil? Clearly, the ability to score ideological points against American society or Western civilization or to induce guilt and thereby extract benefits from the white population today, are greatly enhanced by making enslavement appear to be a peculiarly American or a peculiarly white crime. This explanation is also consistent with the otherwise inexplicable contrast between the fiery rhetoric about past slavery in the United States, used by those who pass over in utter silence the traumas of slavery that still exist in Mauritania, the Sudan, and parts of Nigeria and Benin. Why so much more concern for dead people who are now beyond our help than for living human beings suffering the burdens and humiliations of slavery today? Why does a verbal picture of the abuses of slaves in centuries past arouse far more response than contemporary photographs of present-day slaves in Time magazine, the New York Times, or the National Geographic? It takes no more research than a trip to almost any public library or college library to show the incredibly lopsided coverage of slavery in the United States or in the Western Hemisphere as compared to the meager writings on the even larger number of Africans enslaved in the Islamic countries of the Middle East and North Africa, not to mention the vast numbers of Europeans also enslaved in centuries past in the Islamic world and within Europe itself. At least a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates alone from 1500 to 1800. And some European slaves were still being sold on the auction block in Egypt, years after the Emancipation Proclamation freed blacks in the United States. Indeed, an Anglo-Egyptian treaty of August 4, 1877, prohibited the continued sale of white slaves after August 3, 1885, as well as prohibiting the import and export of Sudanese and Abyssinian slaves. During the Middle Ages, Slavs were so widely used as slaves in both Europe and the Islamic world that the very word slave derived from the word for Slav, not only in English, but also in other European languages, as well as in Arabic. Nor have Asians or Polynesians been exempt from either being enslaved or enslaving others. China, in centuries past, has been described as one of the largest and most comprehensive markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. Slavery was also common in India, where it has been estimated that there were more slaves than in the entire Western Hemisphere, and where the original thugs kidnapped children for the purpose of enslavement. In some of the cities of Southeast Asia, slaves were a majority of the population. Slavery was also an established institution in the Western Hemisphere, before Columbus's ships ever appeared on the horizon. 
The Ottoman Empire regularly enslaved a percentage of the young boys from the Balkans, converted them to Islam, and assigned them to various duties in the civil or military establishment. Perhaps at no other period of history was the contrast between the Western and the non-Western world greater. Here was the scene when the Ottoman Empire announced the end of the slave trade. In 1855, when the Sultan's Furman was read out in Mecca and Jeddah, it caused a revolution. Turkish officials, including the Qadi, who read the Furman, were murdered, the garrison shut, and Mecca was in a state of revolt until the port repealed the obnoxious order. And when the governor-general of the Hejaz issued orders on 25th February 1860, forbidding the slave trade in all Turkish ports in the Red Sea, there was great excitement and fear of the recurrence of the 1855 violence. There was no Ottoman cruiser in the Red Sea capable of giving effect to this order, and Turkish officials were too frightened to enforce it. Although the slave trade was formally abolished in the Ottoman Empire, under pressure from the British government, slavery itself continued. As of 1891, the Imperial Palace purchased 11 slave girls for its harem, as others in the Ottoman Empire purchased women as concubines, typically white women from a region near the Caucasus and the Black Sea, known as Circassia, even though every nation in the Western world had by then outlawed slavery. Not only the Turks accepted such slavery, so did the Circassians. Mothers often groomed their daughters for this role and sold them into what was considered to be a desirable situation, at least by comparison with what was available in Circassia. British Foreign Secretary Palmerston said, The only complaint we have ever heard from the Circassians has been against our attempts to stop the traffic. Contrary to the myths to live by, created by Alex Haley and others, Africans were by no means the innocents portrayed in roots, baffled as to why white men were coming in and taking their people away in chains. On the contrary, the region of West Africa from which Kunta Kinte supposedly came was one of the great slave-trading regions of the continent, before, during, and after the white man arrived. It was Africans who enslaved their fellow Africans, selling some of these slaves to Europeans or to Arabs and keeping others for themselves. Even at the peak of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans retained more slaves for themselves than they sent to the Western Hemisphere. This pattern was not confined to West Africa, from which most slaves were sent to the Western Hemisphere. In East Africa, the Maasai were feared slave raiders, and other African tribes, either alone or in conjunction with Arabs, enslaved their more vulnerable neighbors. As late as 1891, it was reported that Manuema slavers had demoralized surrounding tribes, destroying crops, and famine reigned everywhere. Even in the early 20th century, Abyssinians were still raiding other Africans and carrying off slaves. It was 1922 before the British had gained sufficient control in Tanganyika to stamp out slavery there. Arabs were the leading slave raiders in East Africa, ranging over an area larger than all of Europe. The total number of slaves exported from East Africa during the 19th century has been estimated to be at least 2 million. On the issue of slavery, it was essentially Western civilization against the world. 
At the time, Western civilization had the power to prevail against all other civilizations. That is how and why slavery was destroyed as an institution in almost the whole world. But it did not happen all at once or even within a few decades. When the British finally stamped out slavery in Tanganyika in 1922, it was more than half a century after the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States, and vestiges of slavery still survived in parts of Africa into the 21st century. The unique position of the Western world in the history, and especially the destruction of slavery, need not imply that there was unanimity within the West on this institution. In addition to whites who defended the enslavement of Africans on racial grounds or who opposed general emancipation on social grounds, there were many whites, and even blacks, who defended slavery as a matter of self-interest as slave owners. Although most black owners of slaves in the United States were only nominal owners of members of their own families, there were thousands of other blacks in the antebellum South who were commercial slave owners, just like their white counterparts. An estimated one-third of the free persons of color in New Orleans were slave owners, and thousands of these slave owners volunteered to fight for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Black slave owners were even more common in the Caribbean. In short, there were many defenders of slavery in the West, even in the 19th century. And outside the West, slavery was too widely accepted to require defense. Well, that was a sobering wake-up call about slavery, to say the least. We'll hear more from Thomas Sowell's book a little later. Uh, Last week, I hinted that the cause of the end of slavery in the United States was the growing environment of freedom and capitalism, and I didn't really expand on that. However, I noticed that Thomas Sowell continually refers to the development of, quote, that period in history that he so often refers to, and the singular development of, you know, fighting slavery. But what else happened during that period? And that was, of course, the rise of freedom and capitalism. That was what was so unique. These conditions are incompatible with any form of slavery, whether by physical enslavement and compulsion, or whether by more subtle means like high income taxes, property taxes, carbon taxes, ownership, investment controls, you name it, a host of ways to prevent people from reaping the rewards they actually earned through their own efforts. Which now brings us back to our letter writer, Jamie. After having responded personally to Jamie's previous letter, pretty much as we heard in the first quarter of our show, I received a second letter, which reads as follows. Hello, Robert. Thanks for writing me back. Sounds to me like you also see how present-day capitalism has gone off the rails. How do you get a government to act in the best interest of the people, community, families, and not the corporations that back them? You could say, hey, look at all the jobs cancer and obesity creates, or look at all the dividends the prescription drug addicts and junkies are creating, you know, customers for life. We're so lucky to have these industries, quote-unquote. What if capitalism is just a step to something better? You can't only hold back evolution and progression forever. Don't you think it's time to move out of, out of the 50s or stay stagnant till it destroys our civilization all in the name of profit that really only benefits the few? Thanks again, says Jamie. Now I'm going to answer Jamie's question on the issue of how to get a government to act in the best interests of its citizens later on. Uh, 
But you can sense from the way Jamie has asked these questions, along with the commentary, that Jamie still bears a strong prejudice against capitalism. That's pretty well how everyone starts off. We're not born capitalists, that's for sure. But capitalism holding back evolution and progression forever? Time to move out of the 50s? Uh, hello, we're not in the 50s, Jamie. We're in the 1930s, <laughs> European style. This is Robert and I commented last week on the show. And I want to know how you think that freedom and capitalism could, quote, hold back evolution and progression. That doesn't make any sense to me, unless we mean totally different things by those words. An evolution from what to what? Today, the word progressive means moving leftward, very much backwards towards the collectivism of the 1930s in Europe and back before that when serfdom was the rule. I'll take the 50s over that era any day of the week. The 50s was the decade of promise, and anyone who lived through them in most parts of the Western world can attest to that. You'll see it in the art and the movies and TV shows of the time. But since the 50s and thereafter, you can certainly say that, quote, capitalism has gone off the rails. Although you have to be very careful when you do. When capitalism goes off the rails, it can't be called capitalism anymore. You can't just call one condition the same as the condition it was called before. It's a condition. And it's remarkable, actually, how that simple analogy of capitalism going off the rails encapsulates a popular misunderstanding about capitalism. Mainly that even when capitalism goes off the rails, we still call it capitalism. Even when conditions have turned indisputably into socialism, fascism, communism, or some other collectivist environment that remains unmentionable. It's as if, you know, you talked about the weather conditions and you were to say something like, yeah, it's sunny out there, but be sure to wear your raincoat because it's pouring like crazy. Uh, you know, you might get wet, and we need to fix the sun, but we won't mention the rain. Literally, that's how most conversations sound to me when I hear people talking about capitalism in these terms. Inevitably, this leads to nonsensical talk about, quote, quote unquote, fixing capitalism. I mean, let's fix the sun, but uh, instead of getting just out of the rain, as it were. Quite frankly, there is no present-day capitalism, period. The present-day environment, especially in Ontario and in growing more so in North America, is a combination of socialism, fascism, and communism, all politically motivated economic systems, unlike capitalism, which by definition is free of political motivations. And yes, capitalism should be the permanent and guaranteed and forever condition that governments exist to preserve and protect. Why not? When you say that you fear that, you know, we would stay stagnant under capitalism, I want to know how you would think that's even possible in an environment of freedom. To suggest such a thing also suggests to me that you really haven't wrapped your head around the abstract concept of capitalism, nor the abstract concepts of its alternatives. Jamie writes, quote, look at all the jobs cancer and obesity creates, or look at all the dividends prescription drug addicts are creating. We're so lucky to have these industries, and to which I would reply, yeah. You could say those things because, well, they're true. But it's not the cancer. It's the treatment of cancer that creates jobs, the research, the education, without which cancer would just run as its course without any human intervention at all. It would get along quite fine without all of these things. Cancer, like consumption, 
has been around since life began. In fact, I think cancer was actually called consumption at various times in history. How's that for a coincidence? And as far as drug addicts go, in economic terms, and that's what we're talking about, capitalism, they're no different than the rest of us who are food addicts, meaning that, you know, all of us, since we all can go into pretty serious withdrawal from starvation, and yeah, we need food. So you'd think that, gee, because we need it so much, somebody could charge any price in the world because otherwise we would die. It doesn't work that way, does it? And yes, we're lucky to have these industries. Now, if you're trying to make a moral case out of the drug addiction issue, then make the moral case, but don't criticize the people who serve the need. You know, the irony in the prescription drug addiction problem is that it's primarily a socialized medicine issue caused by the misdirection of forced tax dollars spent on non-essential health care spending, like advertising, health care prevention, or, or you know, disease prevention instead of treatment, and a whole host of economic disasters, all due to the absence of capitalistic principles being employed. But the people or companies who provide these services are just business people, not necessarily capitalists. You know, a capitalist actually, separate from the system, is a person who makes money from property, capital, you know, like housing, money, cars that are rented, and any person who buys stocks or bonds for investment purposes. That's a capitalist to the degree that they do that. But it doesn't necessarily mean they support capitalism, because clearly most people don't. They vote for anti-capitalistic parties constantly, because, well, except for Freedom Party, that's all there is on the political store shelf. Capitalism, on the other hand, is another matter. It's, it's the economic counterpart to freedom itself. Again, freedom always meaning, and you never, never get this mixed up, meaning freedom from the coercion of others and nothing else. Then there's the argument, and we hear this a lot from people, that profit, you know, that profit that only benefits the few. That's a non sequitur. It's promoted by all enemies of capitalism. I mean, I'd like someone to explain to me then, if profits only benefit the few, how many people do losses benefit? The many? The fewer? <laughs> it's a ridiculous equation. It's like talking about green isosceles triangles again. Profit is the reward of successful production. Loss is the, if you will, punishment for unsuccessful production. Capitalism allows both processes to take place. Profits do not determine prices. It's the reverse. And, and there's no, nobody can control prices despite all the mythologies you hear and will hear forever now, ever, 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 never true. Prices reflect supply and demand. You know, I'm not hearing a single voice from that unending chorus of voices who said that the price of oil will just keep going on up and up and up and up forever because oil companies can just set those prices, the government's behind them, and we can't do anything about it. I haven't heard a single one of those voices recently. Not since gas prices have plummeted. And when prices rise again, you can bet they'll all start howling at the moon of never-ending higher prices as though what just happened never happened. Now, the imaginary many, as opposed to the imaginary few, have no role in this equation of profit. Concepts of profit and loss pertain only to those who take the effort and take the risk who have the knowledge and do the work necessary to create a profit, something that can only be created by benefiting the many, at least the people they do business with, the people who choose to buy their product in a market free of violence and coercion. 
you know, losses benefit no one and lead to the end of production, which hurts everyone. Concepts of profit and loss refer only to those individuals or specific groups who have invested their own time, their own money, their own effort, and risk to produce something at a price that enough people can afford to make their production profitable. Without the profit, production cannot exist. Profit is production, as Isabel Patterson, who wrote The Amazing God of the Machine, so eloquently demonstrated. Profit is the economic measurement of productivity. It's, the ne it's necessary for survival. And no one else on the planet has any right to claim the results of your own efforts or your creativity unless you choose to trade those products with others under mutually agreeable terms. Otherwise, the transaction wouldn't take place. And if, even if it's true, as many suggest, that capitalism is just a step to something better, then obviously it's a necessary step even so. Still one that remains to be taken. We haven't taken it yet, so why don't we try it? However, capitalism isn't a step to somewhere else or to some better human social condition. Capitalism is the end economic condition because it's the byproduct of freedom itself without which capitalism is a non-issue. There is nothing better than capitalism. Capitalism is that ideal that we work to achieve. I mean, what's better than being free of violence, being free of coercion, being free of physical attack? What's better than having a free market free of all of these things in order to trade with your fellow human being? What's better than having a myriad of affordable choices from which to select things that serve each and every individual's particular individual needs? If you can think of such a condition, I'd be more than willing to entertain it, even though I already know there isn't one. Which brings me to the final question for this part of the show. You know, when people ask this question or phrase the, the term, you know, maybe we can, maybe capitalism's a move to something better, something better than capitalism. What they're really asking is, what if there's a way we could live and prosper without effort? And with that question, we enter the politics of evil. History's answer to this question lays at the source of all of mankind's evils, wars, conflicts, hatreds, and tyrannies since the earliest days of state and governments, and particularly behind slavery. We know today there's only two ways to produce the food, housing, and other needs of human beings. You either have various forms of tyranny and slavery, number one, or number two, you've got freedom and capitalism. There's no third choice. There's no middle way. You can't mix the two. You can't mix poison with medicine and expect to get some, some healthy thing out of it. It doesn't work that way. An effortless existence can only be achieved in one of two ways. Either one enslaves others to provide the necessities of existence for oneself, or one can create enough profit, the thing that we also hate, supposedly, through production and over time accumulate enough of that profit as savings from which to draw an income over a period of time during which one is not, by nature's necessities, quote-unquote, forced to work or expend energy. But even the savings option can't be really considered effortless because the effort was indeed expended just in advance of the actual expenditure. I mean, you can't get out of something what you don't put in. And the tragedy is that all, under all non-capitalist collectivist governments, savings are not really possible for most people, especially those at the lower end of the income scale. So if you look at the broader historical reason of why slavery, well, for energy and force. They didn't have electricity, they didn't have tractors, no cars, trains, no trucks, and they didn't have 
capitalism. So this is the whole issue. It is because freedom and capitalism are moral conditions that the institution of slavery could be defeated and the rest of us could be free individuals. It's the same with all evil political ideologies, all emanating from the sinister left. And we'll be back after this. If slavery is not morally wrong, it is hard to imagine what else could possibly be wrong. Yet when Lincoln expressed this view, which was gaining currency in his time, it was a belief less than a century old in the West and still virtually non-existent outside the West. In ancient times, Aristotle had attempted to justify slavery, but many other Western and non-Western philosophers alike took it so much for granted that they felt no need to explain or justify it at all. Some Muslims regarded attempts to abolish slavery as impious, since the Quran itself accepted slavery as an institution, while trying to ameliorate the lot of the slave. Only in the American South did a large apologetic literature develop, seeking to justify slavery, because only there was slavery under such large-scale and sustained attacks on moral grounds as to require a response. While slavery was referred to in antebellum America as a peculiar institution, in an international perspective and in the long view of history, it was not this institution that was peculiar, but the principles of American freedom, with which slavery was in such obvious and irreconcilable conflict. If all men were created equal, as the Declaration of Independence proclaimed, then the only way to justify slavery was by depicting those enslaved as not fully men. A particularly virulent form of racism thus arose from a particularly desperate need to defend slavery against telling attacks that invoked the fundamental principles of the American Republic. Nowhere else in the world was slavery in such dire straits ideologically, and nowhere else did racism reach such heights, or depths, in defense of the institution. As a noted study of Brazil observed, the defenders of slavery on clearly racist grounds were as rare among public supporters of slavery in Brazil as they were common in the United States. Brazil was not a democracy, and so had no such ideological contradictions to overcome. In short, racism was neither necessary nor sufficient for slavery, whose origins antedated racism by centuries. Racism was a result, not a cause, of slavery, and not all societies that enslaved people of another race became pervaded with racism to the extent that the American South did. The stark contrast between the slave and the free, which made slavery a moral issue in the Western world in modern times, was simply not there for most societies, and for most of history in most of the world. In hierarchical societies, where people were born into their stations in life, ranging through many gradations from royalty to bondage. Slavery was simply the bottom rung on a ladder based on the accident of birth, one notch below the serf, who was bought and sold with the land instead of individually. So you see, Mr. Solo, each one has been chosen with an eye to intelligence, fitness, and above all, ambition. Thrush is an organization that believes the world should have a two-party system. The masters and the slaves. Wouldn't you say that was right, Mr. Brown? Very nicely put, Mr. Solo. 
You are listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5130, where our topic today concerns the contrast between slavery and capitalism. The voices you just heard were those of Carol O'Connor, of course, best known as Archie Bunker, and actor Robert Vaughn from a clip from The Man from Uncle, not our Robert Vaughn, but the first Robert Vaughn that I ever knew from the television series The Man from Uncle. Of course, there should be no masters and there should be no slaves. There should be no rule by a majority. There should be no rule by any group over any other group, for heaven's sakes. What we need today is governance, not rule. A nation of laws, not of men. And it just scares me to consider how many people don't even know what I mean when I use those words. They're unfamiliar to a lot of people. So this brings us to our question. How does one get government to act in the best interests of the people, as our letter writer asked? And of course, uh, I guess where I would start is I'd say you, you, never discuss, you, you never will be able to find that political party that will lead you to the proper government unless you thoroughly understand the nature of freedom and capitalism. Until that happens, you don't even know which one is the right one. By voting for a political party that, that supports the policies and creates the conditions of freedom and capitalism, that's the only way you're going to get those conditions. You have to look for a party that represents rights, not interests. You know, freedom is the only universal value that benefits all people regardless of social and economic status. So that's obviously why I'm involved with the Freedom Party and became one of its founding members. Such a party has to have a proper and consistent philosophical route to be able to do the job, to recognize which policies are the correct ones and which ones are not. And here's the problem that most people think politics is about. Simply trying to piecemeal, you know, uh, um, issue by issue, policy by policy, a, quote, free society together by, by attempting to push single issues and single policy initiatives to existing politicians, who, by the way, are all on the left, which means the theft philosophy, it's simply irrational. You're never going to accomplish that end. Today's politicians, including conservatives, believe that the purpose of government is to redistribute wealth. That's not capitalism. We, you know, normally, normal people call that process theft and regard it as being completely immoral. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is still an act of robbery. You don't get away from that. And it's this very immoral act that politicians of all non-freedom stripes regard as their highest moral ideal. For a guy like me, this is evil to the core, and demonstrably so. I can see it. How come they can't? I hear people say, if, if voting changed anything, they'd ban it. <laughs> Talk about cynicism. It's not true. Because voting changes everything. It does every time. And the fact that things stay the same is because people vote to keep them the same. It's the cynics who say things like, you know, voting never changes anything, who keep voting for the things they're against without even being conscious of their own shooting themselves in the foot. And, you know, the problem is voting does change things. You got it backwards. And there's another false belief that leads you into false conclusions and makes you feel safe voting for any choice out there. Well, if voting changed anything, uh, then nobody would vote. So I guess it doesn't really matter who I vote for. It sure does. But 
Even if you think voting won't change anything, you know, there's always those people that say you can vote to send a message. I think that's misunderstood too, because it's not just a message to the sitting government or to the public, but it's also a message to the party you support, to let them know that you support them. And in that case, if you're supporting a free, a free society, you've got one choice in the province of Ontario, the rest of North America is in big trouble. I don't see anything there. But voting itself is not where the power for political change resides. There is only one formal structure I know of that this can be done with without resorting to violence and thuggery of the past, and that's through the political party structure, which incidentally also is now under attack by politicians themselves. Politicians who want to escape accountability by pushing the ultimate responsibility for their fiascos on the public itself. Well, y'all voted for it. Let's have a referendum. Let's, you know... It's ridiculous. It's all an evasion of government and what you're looking for. And finally, you have to always be aware of this underlying reality. The government is an institution of force. Government is a gun. Everything we do with government, we do with a gun. The standard of morality of this action by government is no different than that of individuals, particularly in light of the fact that a government's constituted with the consent of the government or of the governed, rather. So whenever you think about what you should do with, the go with, with government, think about walking around with a gun. What would you do? What would be morally justifiable to do with that gun? Would you be funding your health care system with a gun? Would you be going down the street and robbing your neighbors and saying, give, give, give to my local hospital because my mom's in there now? Would that be acceptable? I mean, here's a big question. If slavery is morally wrong, then so too must be all forms of forced collectivism, wouldn't they? Well, guess what? They are. So this thing we call democracy, let's not turn it into a system of slaves voting for their masters. And yet we will continue to do that. And why do we keep doing that? Because we believe we can get something for nothing. We want to steal. We want to obtain the unearned at the expense of others. And we're going to justify it. We have a way to do it. We've got a brilliant way to live a life without effort. You know, slavery and socialism are based on the very same principles, except that socialism is sold on fraudulent grounds. And those fraudulent grounds we best know as altruism. And isn't it funny that in, in an effort to avoid capitalism as a means to a desired end, there are always those who insist that altruism and philanthropy are the only roads to moral economic salvation. That's why Canada has a health care program that's the envy of the world. We'll talk about that when we return. Anyway, I'm really sorry I made fun of your stutter in high school. You're doing great. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, God, just finish the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. I... No one wants to hear my apologies. I think your mistake is doing it over the phone. I mean, if they could look into your eyes, they'd melt. <laughs> Kenny, it doesn't matter what you did in the past. You're a good person now. Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You weren't just called a ba 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 bitch <laughs> Perhaps you could assuage your guilt through altruism. <laughs> Which word's tripping you up? Assuage or altruism? Both. You'll feel better by doing something nice for someone. Oh, I actually knew that. I never doubted you. 
Every other week I serve at a soup kitchen downtown. Ooh, I can't do that. If I stand over a steaming pot, my hair just goes boing. <laughs> what else could I do? There's Habitat for Humanity, building houses for the poor. Okay, come on, I don't even have my own house. I'm gonna build one for someone else. <laughs> How about donating some of your clothes? Oh my God, that's perfect. Cause I, I have so many clothes I don't wear and they're just taking up space and I go shopping to buy more stuff and I have no place to put it. This will totally fix that. What about helping people? And helping people. <laughs> <laughs> so what's this foundation dinner about? Haiti. You ever been, Bill? Uh, no. Don't think you'd like it much. Longest lines I've ever seen. And they sure as hell ain't for the new Harry Potter movie either. No, they're for food. And not the seven-course tasting menu at La Bernadine. What they're waiting for is much simpler. Specifically, rice. In the poorest district of the poorest city of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, there lives an 11-year-old girl by the name of Clelia. Now, Clelia has to stand in line for two or three hours every afternoon for just a small portion of rice. It's not as if she could say, you know, to hell with this, I'm going to go home, because without that quart of rice, she will go home to a beating. Clelia is a slave. Now, I... I'm not talking about a slave for art or a slave for love or fashion. No, I, I'm talking slave. You know, as in she works for her owners. She cooks, she cleans, she washes, she runs the errands and she stands in that bloody line for the rice. There are estimated to be, in Haiti, over 300,000 of these children, mainly girls all over the island. And they are owned by strangers and they are known as Rest of X. So if you like standing in lines and waiting, Canada is a great place to come to, especially our healthcare system. And I have in front of me a number of newspaper clippings that I got out of one day's newspaper, and it's just a nightmare story. But I think if any one of them summarizes the experience of all the rest, it's this one that was a letter to the editor written by Kay in the London Free Press on February 24th. Regarding the article, ER Speed Up Hit Snags, writes the letter writer, and I quote, The health system can't take an auto-assembly line approach and treat people as if they are a piece of metal with no feelings. I have over the last few months been in ER. I am 92 years old and have been as much told that I have lived too long. I have been through this system and I am shocked by the lack of skills in managing people who are in pain and suffering. I have seen people shuffled out of the ER with their catheters over their arms and some pulling oxygen tanks and sent home by taxi at 10 p.m. I have complained to the higher level at London Health Sciences Centre and have had no reply as to any action taken regarding rules for patient discharge. People in pain and suffering need to speak out for changes in the system. Getting rid of well-trained people will worsen the problem and is not part of the solution. These actions will allow things to deteriorate. There seems to be no sense of feeling for the age, the frail, or the sick. Caring and compassion are slowly disappearing. Who are these robots making decisions? 
We're human beings with feelings. The ER should be user-friendly, not an assembly line that ships people home before they are truly cared for. Please find proper solutions. No more cuts, trial and error, or using sick people as pawns. And that's just one sample of many stories. And finally, this sad story of waiting in line that originates from the Burlington Post by Kathy Yankus. From January 21st, Burlington teen Laura Hillier loses her battle with leukemia. Laura Hillier, the Burlington teen who fought so hard not only for her own life but against the injustice of long wait times for transplant beds for cancer patients with stem cell donors, died Wednesday morning at Jurovinsky. In July, Laura and her mom Frances went public with her disease when it was determined that despite the fact the stem cell donor had been found for Laura, the transplant could not proceed because of a lack of transplant beds, not just at Jurovinsky but across the province. Patients like Laura were forced to undergo unnecessary rounds of chemotherapy while they waited. Calling it cruel, inhumane, and potentially deadly for patients, Francis wrote a heartful letter to Dr. Michael Shirar, President and CEO of Cancer Care Ontario, with copies to the Ontario Premier, the province's Minister of Health, and anyone else she believed could intervene. Because Laura had turned 18 one month before her cancer returned, their fight continued when they requested that Laura's transplant be done at sick kids where there were no wait times instead of the backlogged adult system. End quote. What a tragedy. I have boxes full of stories like this. And, you know, Paul McKeever said it all when he said, and he's a leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, when he said the government of Ontario deliberately chose to murder this girl rather than give up its health insurance monopoly. And I so agree. So what's it going to be? Freedom? Socialism? Serfdom? Slavery? Funny how all the non-freedom conditions start with an S. <laughs> but for us, freedom and capitalism are just right. Each and every time, even in the 50s of every century. Join us again this century when we'll continue our journey again in the right direction next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Hey, can I talk to you about something? It's a little awkward. I know what this is about. <laughs> Given the professional standstill you're at, you're wondering if this is the appropriate time to abandon your research and focus on teaching. <laughs> yes. And if I may suggest, consider changing disciplines yeah, to the humanities, yeah, perhaps history. One of the advantages of teaching history is that you don't have to create things, you know. You just have to remember stuff that happened and then parrot it back. You could have fun with that. Yeah, that's not it. Stuart's kind of interested in Amy. Oh, of course he is. She's very interesting. Yeah, did you know when she was 14, she severed the webbing between her own toes? No. Uh, he wanted me to find out if you'd have a problem with him asking her out. Well, I'm not sure how to respond, Leonard. I don't own Amy. You can't own a person. At least not since. <laughs> Eighteen sixty-three. The President Lincoln freed the.
slaves. Come on, Leonard. If you're going to teach history, these are the kind of facts you'll have to know. 